This is Bojor Chai, the Thank God Laura Secord Still Loves Israel edition. I'm Avi Feingold in Montreal, and I'm here with Melissa Lansman in Toronto and Alana Zakon in Vancouver. We are your Frozen Chosen. On today's episode, we will examine the sex lives of Jewish teens. What? And we'll figure out whether we should care at all about Jewish reality television. But before we get to that, let's hear from our sponsor. Today's episode is brought to you by our sponsor, Atelier Lou Bijouterie in Montreal, Quebec. Atelier Lou specializes in watches and custom-designed jewelry, along with a curated selection of designer jewelry. Visit them online or in person, and Eric Goldberg will help make your jewelry dreams come true. Atelier Lou is offering a promo code for all Bonjour High listeners using BON18 at checkout for 10% off your order at atelierlou.com. I didn't even want to talk about this topic, um, whatever. I got outvoted, which is totally fine. Um, Alana, can you explain to me what my unorthodox life is and why I should care about it? I will preface this by saying that, well, this will all make sense in a second, but I couldn't even bring myself to watch the actual show. I watched clips about it. I watched interviews about it. But because of how uncomfortable I feel about the show existing... Uh, which I'll explain in a second. I, I couldn't even watch it. Um, so why I think that this is relevant, and this is coming from my perspective as an actor who is Jewish in the film and TV industry amongst other acting industries, is that so often we see this exact same narrative. We see this in Unorthodox, in the movie Disobedience. The list goes on and on and on. And while I think it's totally valid for this woman, Julia, to have this perspective, and for those of you who haven't watched the show, it's basically about a woman who was in a more religious Jewish community who decides to leave the Jewish community and become, um, uh, engross herself in the world of fashion. And she kind of takes her whole family with her. And then they have varying degrees of, um, comf- comfort with this change. Um, is that the Jewish community is, is so nuanced. We have so many different types of Jews of various different, uh, religious denominations. We have all different types of ethnicities within Jewish communities from all around the world. And everything is so you know, nuanced and different. And from an outside perspective, if we see the same narrative over and over and over about um, Orthodox Jews being oppressed and being contained in these communities that they need to leave in order to be their full selves, in order to be happy, that sends this message to the non-Jewish world who is consuming this media that it's bad. And even in my own life, outside of media, having lived in the Mile End for a long time in Montreal, which is an area that is Hasidic Jews and hipsters, basically, Um, I heard so many people who are not Jewish make these comments about Hasidic people being like, yeah, it looks really culty to me. Why do they all dress the same? Why don't they look at me in the eye if I'm a woman? And to me, that's extremely problematic. And with the the rise in anti-Semitism, I don't know that this is the narrative that we need. And I watched a great, great interview uh, with Alison Josephs and Abby Stein on Jews in the City, where she talks about how she actually pitched positive representations of Orthodox Jews to Netflix, and they, they, they didn't want it. And to me, that's extremely telling that they do have an agenda of trying to get across this particular story. So anyway, I could go on and on and on. They may not have just liked her pitch. I don't think so. Maybe, but but we we don't we don't see any uh, we don't see, we don't it. see any representation. Uh, look, I I, I got to tell you, I'm gonna I'm gonna jump in here, and I I'm not a TV watcher. Although I've tried, I've like I've tried to get into TV. Even like even a pandemic couldn't get me watching TV. Because um, for for most people that know me, they know that I watch news and baseball games, and that's about it. So I did watch this. I watched the first couple episodes, and like it's just it's so cringe. I hate this show so much, and I think I hate it for part of you know part of the same reason that that uh, that you do, Alana. But more than that, I think it's so dangerous that the mainstream media uh, message around orthodoxy or Judaism in general is so negative. Um, Also, the show is completely fake. Um, there is, you know, for those who haven't watched the show, I'm not going to recommend it, but, uh, the, it looks contrived and fake and the conversations and the conflict are all, um, like are all like Looney Tunes, like reality show, but not, but not real. So the, the, the idea that 
it is even real um, is one. But it, what it does is it's, you know, the, the worst... The worst anti-Semites in, in, in history um, are the are the self-hating Jews, and it's those who pervert the narratives um, or or the rituals um, and and frame them in a different way that are that are negative to so many people whose lives that you know that's just not the that's not the truth, and that's a really dangerous game. So you've got the you know what I see as the self-hating Jew as the main character here, um, who just hates everything about uh, about her existence coupled with the fact that people who don't know anything about Jews are seeing a depiction of Orthodox Judaism as something that you need to run away from. Well, that is, that is the silent attack on, uh, I think, on religion, on religious freedom, um, and it is what we are seeing now, and it is part of a culture that is so dangerous to the continuity of, uh, of religion. Um, I have, I don't watch a lot of TV, but now I'm like, I'm not convinced that I'm like a TV person. And I, again, I hate this so much. I have a, I have a few things to comment on that. First off, um, I actually did find testimonials from people who grew up with this woman and know her family. And they really called her out on a lot of things that were incorrect. And she made it seem like she came from a much more oppressive community than she did when she was, she was in like a black hat community. It wasn't like ultra Hasidic. And, uh, and much more liberal than she made it seem. On top of that, something that was pointed out in uh, the interview that I mentioned before with Alison Josephs is that if you do a little digging, you don't see a lot of other religions or cultural groups that have this theme. Do you see shows about Muslim people leaving the Muslim community? Like, I don't see that very often, if at all. I've never heard of a show like that. So it's, it's almost like, why is it that Jewish people always need to have this narrative? It just feeds into the anti-Semitism. And I will disagree with you that I don't think that self-hating Jews are the worst anti-Semites in history. I don't, I don't think it's, you know, a, a necessarily a good thing and it's not helping us in any way. But I think there are people that we should be a lot more afraid of. I am so indifferent about this whole series. Like, I watched an episode. I'll tell you why. Because as you said, and you you, start, you prefaced your whole discussion, Alana, with the fact that, you know, as a professional, in as an actor, as somebody in the industry, and, and that just frames it right away. This is not reality, right? This is quote-unquote reality. They are actors. They are clearly heightening the tension, and clearly stories are interesting. Nobody wants a story about a family that's just living. So they're always looking for something which is a story, and the story happens to be, in this case, that. Do you think that Italians liked it how for decades the only story that they would hear about Italians within Hollywood was mafia? Do you think that um, black exploitation? Right. So then, why should no, it be any different that, like, for us? But it, but that is part of it. And yes, we're going through this thing. Um, and but nobody really thinks that all Italians are connected to the mafia. That's my point. Is that at the end of the day, anybody who has remotely remote savviness about media, and this is not just now. This is fifty years ago. This is a hundred years ago. Right? Should recognize that what is represent what representation is versus what reality is are very very different. And if you can't figure that out, that this is not what ex orthodox look ex orthodoxy looks like, you know, then you're probably one of those people that thinks that porn is a true representation of human sexuality. Some people do, unfortunately. I, I'm aware that people do, but but that is that's part of the narrative is that we talk about this and we tell people, you know, we don't say don't watch porn. We say, you know, recognize that some people say don't watch porn, but the people that are pro-porn say this is something, this is a fantasy world. This is not the way sex exists in reality. And you should know the difference between the two. And that's on the Orthodox world. And I, I, it was wonderful that so many of them came to their rescue and said, yes, this is what orthodoxy looks like for me. But there were many people that went and said, you know what? It is complicated and it is messy and it is tough. And there is a lot to walk away from. Right? There's a lot of stuff that is really, really bad about orthodoxy, and I put it on them. Right? I don't put it on the media to go and say, well, because your house is a little messy and disgusting right now, then we're not going to portray it until you fixed it. Right? The media says, look, I have a, we have a, a bit of a dumpster fire of a community where they're telling women to do this stuff. And some people are saying, no, we're not really telling this woman this stuff. And other people are saying, yes, it is. Well, as long as that stuff is happening, then the media is going to portray it. The media is going to say, well, let's put a lens on that. And it's not up to the media to go and say, well, I'm going to be nice and I'm not going to cover this right now. The media is just interested in eyeballs and the media is interested in stories that sell. And this is a story that's selling right now. But we have so many of these stories. Do we really need more? Tell me, do we need more Holocaust movies? I mean, like, 
sure sometimes but that we shouldn't always be i i gotta say like if the depiction of jews is 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 jewish people leaving the orthodox world or uh or you know the or the holocaust um in terms of you know our uh, our relationship to the the state of israel we're losing um and it's a it's a it's a losing battle and it's not accurate and it goes it goes further than that what it does is it makes it acceptable to depict jews in a uh in this way as a general and as a generalization and i'm you know i'm not even a i'm i'm not even an observant jew i'm not i'm not from but i am so offended um by the fact that the world sees the jewish community as either this or that, and uh, and there's nothing in between. Um, I think that that's a huge disservice, uh, and I think it's more problematic than that. But those things are. But those things exist in between. We just don't think about them, and we champion them in this way. But we don't end up like as soon as something big happens, we're like we forget the fact. For example, that um, one of the greatest characters to come out of the past thirty years in Hollywood to me was right. Uh, somebody who goes up and says, I don't roll on Shabbos, right? I'm Shomer fucking Shabbos, right? That's a great piece. He's he's a religious Jew in some way or another, but nobody goes and says, oh, we don't have representation of, of three-dimensional Jewish complex characters. They just push him to the side. A Serious Man, wonderful film, doesn't talk about, right, he may not be super orthodox, but he's clearly somebody who's grappling with his faith. Nobody goes and says, well, there's no representations of Judaism that, that are good. What was that comedy, The Goldbergs? What's the that, yeah. that that whole sitcom? Well, it it I uh, I catch it. You can catch it if you're in a plane. George and, and Estelle Costanza, <laughs> right? How many people? There's so many places where we see they're not great, Jewish like, characters funny, though. Oh come on, they're basically Jewish. They are, but they aren't. But and why is that? That's what I, you need to so ask. So fine. So Jerry's, Jerry's parents in Seinfeld. Sure. Jerry's sure. parents in on Seinfeld, right? They're the same thing. And I think it's just like. But whatever it is, there's so there actually are lots of Jewish characters, lots of normalized Jewish characters around. The same way we actually have lots of normalized, not you know, uh, really flouncy gay characters anymore, and we don't have Italian characters that are purely mafioso, and we don't have you know, uh, we have gotten three dimensional, but nobody stops. No, but look at look at the look at the inequity in this. Like the the amount of people who have become you know who have who've become more observant over the course of their lifetimes, or movements like Chabad, or movements you know any Balchuva movement, um, where you have just droves of people joining, uh, you know, joining the faith in a different way than they 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 grew up is is exponentially larger than the you know the one the one person that leaves that makes up stories about how oppressive her life used to be and there is not there's there's no even keel on this and it just goes to show you that that's it's just not the truth and if that's how we're being depicted that's a problem that we should all see I'll, I'll say that I'm somewhere in between both of you right now because I do think that there are stories like this that do happen and I do agree with you Avi that there is a lot of experiences like this sure that is super valid but the difference is that we are in the Jewish community so we understand that and I do not believe that the greater world really I think you're giving them too much credit and and I I will end my point on the article that I really love that I've been sending to all my friends by Melina Saval um, too Jewish for Hollywood as anti-semitism soars Hollywood should address its enduring hypocrisy and hyperbolic caricatures of Jews because it really talks about like why is Mrs. Maisel played by a very, very non-Jewish actor? Why is it that every time that it's a positive portrayal of Jews, for the most part, they bring in, you know, even playing Ruth Bader Ginsburg, they, ha- they had someone on hold that was Jewish and they brought in someone else. Why is it that we always end up having to play the more self-hating versions of, of a Jewish portrayal? I think that's something to think about. I, I, first of all, I'm so glad you brought that up, Melissa, because... Um, that is a point that I like to make over and over again. And I like to remind people that if we really care about people and we welcome people making big changes in their lives and saying, you know what, I want to become more religious and more observant through Chabad or through Eshat Torah or through any other organization, we have to accept that as human beings, right, the opposite can and does and will and should happen, right? Not it, becoming Jewish or becoming more observant is not a one-way path, right? There will be an equal number of people that say, this is not for me. And as soon as people say, this is for me, yay, this is the coolest thing ever. But as soon as people say this is not for me, oh, you don't really get it. It's wrong. You didn't really understand it. It's not for you, right? And 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 we 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 like to push those things away. And it's important for us to recognize that that religion is a two-way street. People become religious and people leave religion. And it is up to orthodoxy to go and show that. And you know what? There are. I, I I'll give you two examples. Um, Beatty Deitch. She is a uh, marathon runner that is 
orthodox. She covers her hair. She wears a skirt. She missed being in the Olympic trials by like apparently yay much and uh, whatever. It's a cool story. And people put put that out there and say, this is cool. This is amazing. There's an orthodox woman that is an American ninja warrior right now. She's on the like the upcoming season. It's acting. It's reality TV, but it's fitness. And she's pretty badass, if you ask me. Um, and there's a lot of great stuff coming out of the orthodox world. Right. And they are doing all that. The only thing is, is that they're not touting the stories that they don't like and other people are. And, you know, that's why I'm kind of blasé. And I think that the education that has to happen is where we go and say become better media savvy consumers um, rather than saying this is a bad story and we can never put these things up. Because then essentially what we're saying is we're not allowed to air. air not never. Just not always. We're not allowed to air our dirty laundry or we're not allowed to, we don't like it when other people air our dirty laundry. And unfortunately, if there's dirty laundry to be aired, then that's what happens. Last week, uh, New Voices website published an article entitled How Jewish Youth Groups Are Breeding a Toxic Sexual Culture for Teens. In it, the author, Shira Wolkenfeld, outlines how groups such as USY and BBYO foster spaces where hookup culture has run amok and power has become some kind of sexual currency. To many of those who have attended Jewish youth groups, this is nothing new, uh, but it does feel like we're at some kind of a tipping point here. With us to discuss this is Rachel Bayar. Rachel is the founder of the Bayer Group, a consultancy that works with camps, schools, corporations, and faith-based organizations to sensitize them to where and how sexual misconduct, harassment, and abuse could be happening within an organization, and helps them create change that fosters safe spaces within those organizations. Rachel, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me. Can you help us define what's going on here? Because this seems both very bad, but also confusing, since it's really peers and it's not some sort of, you know, sexual predator, Weinstein, Epstein situation, although many of the kids might be Weinsteins or Epsteins, um, where powerful individuals are taking advantage of others. How is this not just teens having sex? Well, I think that in order to really answer that question, we have to be able to take a step back and recognize that there isn't one type of abuse or one type of harassment that exists. And that because we're a whole world made of people that have individual experiences and individual places where they express those experiences, we can't just look at it in a monolithic form, right? So if what we're really doing is we're taking a look at how teens are interacting with each other, I think the framing of the question very much needs to be, okay, this may not be, may not be a predator situation, but what is happening may be just as significant, just as impactful, and just as as bad. I'm curious to know the history a bit about your um, work with the Bayer Group. Can you tell us what that came out of? Did you see a need that was missing in the community and in institutions? Sure. So I'm a former sex crimes and child abuse prosecutor um, from the Bronx District Attorney's Office, where I was for a number of years coming out of law school. Um, it really set the foundation for the formative years of my being an attorney and wanting to be able to add value in a significant way. Um, when I left the DA's office, after having worked there for a number of years, I, transi I transitioned to a global investigative company, um, and I was a managing director in their sexual misconduct consulting and investigations division. And for a number of years, I really traveled the country pre-COVID, I would say during COVID, it was mostly Zoom, um, to be able to work with all different types of youth-serving organizations as well as corporate workplaces on historical abuse investigations, on boundary-crossing behavior investigations, on investigations when you have teens that may have interacted with each other where there is an accusation or an allegation of a lack of consent. And one of the other things that I've spent many years doing is working on what it means to prevent the very crimes that we spent so many years prosecuting, what it means to really take a look at the places where we are, whether it's a faith-based place or a school or a camp or a youth organization, and say, how do we fix this before the problems actually happened? And so I ended up going out on my own and founding my own consultancy, really to focus on that 
on that issue. How do we prevent these things from happening? And so I take a focus on what it means to do trainings and workshops and really have impactful conversations about preventing these very things before they happen. I actually want to know, and you touched on something, um, I want to know if you're hearing from, um, you know, in, in this particular case, from, from a community that you sort of refuses to think that this is, you know, this is happening in their backyard. And what are some of the, you know, give me a little bit about what you've encountered and, and how you maybe fight that off if, in fact, it is happening. So I actually think that when it comes to any issues of abuse or harassment or honestly, you know, issues and how teens relate to each other and consent and things of that sort, you know, that's a that's a big bucket of topics, right? That's not it's not all the same thing. And what I would say is no matter what community I go into, no matter what religion it is, what, you know, what type of place it is, the socioeconomic, you know, situation, what race, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't really matter. There's this overwhelming feeling of maybe there's an issue, but does it really happen here? Is this really a problem here? And I really think that when it comes to issues of abuse and harassment, it's, it's this, not talked about, right? This untalked about, I don't think that's actually proper grammar, but we're going to go with it anyway. Unspoken. Um, equalizer. Unspoken. Thank you. Thank you. That unspoken issue of it's, it's a great equalizer. So what you're saying is that like, while, and this is endemic to all smaller communities or all organizations or all communities in general, everybody thinks that the grass is greener on their side and that problems are elsewhere, but they're not with us. Or even adding to that, it's not just that problems are elsewhere. I think a lot of times what we'll encounter is, are these really problems, right? Are these really issues? So it's not even that these are definitely issues in that place. It's, does this stuff really happen the way that we talk about? You know, does it really happen the way that it's being reported in the news? How bad is it? Is it, is it a dramatize, you know, are we dramatizing things? Are we making a bigger deal than they need to be? We see this in the article where you have some of the representatives from these youth organizations that are basically saying, yeah, I sort of hear about it, but we don't really like anytime a whiff of this comes up, we push it out of the way. We say this does not exist in our community or this shouldn't exist in our community um, when it's in reality, you know, the the, the, the participants are saying, how could you be ignoring this? This is so much everywhere. Yeah, and I, I, the truth is, the truth is I see a lot of people who are able to acknowledge and really able to understand that like this stuff does happen or recognize that just because they haven't seen it, this stuff does happen. But I think it's really hard when there's someone on one side saying, this is happening right here. And you have other people that may not be hearing it in the way that they need them to. Yeah. I mean, I think it speaks to the whole movement in general with hashtag me too. I, I don't know about any of you, but for me, when that came out, it actually had me reflect on experiences that I had that I hadn't realized were very non-consensual or assault um, or experiences that I'd heard of from other people because it really wasn't part of m my education growing up in the 90s, um, certainly not even earlier decades for other people. So it kind of makes me wonder, where do we start? You know, is it the institutions themselves, the camps, the schools that need to educate young people on consent and on these types of healthier relationships? Or does it start from the home, a bit of both? What are your feelings about it? I think we can't take a bifurcated approach ever when it comes to changing a cultural norm or changing what society needs. You know, when I walk into, let's use schools as an example, right? I walk into schools to do trainings for faculty and staff on preventing abuse or boundaries with kids or any of these things that are really, really important. Well, you can give the best training and the best workshop in the world to faculty and staff, but at the same time, what happens when parents ask them to cross boundaries with their kids, right? Or what happens when a kid pushes a boundary and there's a staff member that just doesn't know how to, how to set that line in a way that doesn't, you know, create some sort of appearance of impropriety. And I think it happens, you know, in any type of situation. If we bifurcate it and say we're only going to train our kids or teens on consent, on the dangers of, let's say, hookup culture, on what it means to have an understanding of misogyny and harassment and abuse and, and speaking up and speaking up as people that care about 
other people, if we only treat it as a kid issue, then we're not, we're doing a disservice to everyone, right? Parents need to know how to talk to their kids about these issues. And schools and camps and youth groups, how to know when to be able to implement, you know, workshops and policies and conversations about these issues. And kids themselves need to grapple with these issues. We have to be able to take a holistic approach when it comes to this. Is it is it a lack of education though, or is it is it something different? You know, I don't know. That's a great question. You know, I think that there are so many fantastic people and organizations that I have, you know, really been privileged to to go in and work with and to help facilitate making their spaces safer and better. But it really takes a partnership. Right. So I think that there are a lot of people who really understand the need for that partnership, for growth and for change. Um, and I think that there are a lot of people that that don't. Right. You know, so I think that it it's a really hard question to answer. So I actually think that the the article actually really hit a point specifically within the Jewish community that um, I think is unspoken of and really um, gets at the core of what's going on here, which is that on the one hand, we want we teach our we may be teaching our kids about consent, and we may be teaching our kids about you know sexual propriety within a Jewish context, and that there's Jewish values around um, being whether whether you want to call it modest or proper or consent, whatever it is. But on the other hand, every kid there knows that they're basically there so that they can meet other Jews and marry other Jews. And so they're torn in this, like, well, we're here on the one hand to, like, do Jewish stuff, but we're not doing a ton of Jewish stuff. The thing that we're supposed to be doing that is Jewish, or at least that the message that they get from the you, you know, all the interviewees in the article is, you know, shtup like rabbits so that we can have more Jews, right? Because that's the answer to the world and or to the Jewish world. And, and kids are conflicted in this way. Um, and I guess they don't really have the, they may not have the ethics or the the deep values there to help them think about what does that mean to be in a committed relationship or not, because they're a bunch of horny teenagers um, that are being told, you know, do this, but don't really do this because you have to wait a few years, but we want to like set the base right here, right? Is there... Is there anything in that locus of thinking that does apply to the Jewish community or doesn't? Like, what's going on here? Well, I think that in the article, actually, Sheila Katz said it best, you know, and I really I want to give her credit because what she said really resonated with me tremendously. She said something to the effect of, and this may not be a direct quote, um, but it was something to the effect of it's time for the Jewish community to Stop pretending that hookup culture is not a threat to young people, right? That it's about systemic misogyny that objectifies women and girls. And I would even take that a step further. It, it objectifies people, right? It objectifies individuals. And I think that we can have a real conversation about things like Judaism and community and peoplehood or what it means to think through, you know, intermarriage versus not. That is a separate question and a separate discussion from something that creates this toxicity that is really about devaluing us as individuals and devaluing kids, right? Their bodies and their, and, and who they are does not serve the purpose of making sure that there is continuity. Their voices can actually affect change to share that. But the truth is, as the adults in the room, we have to be the ones to say these are actually two very separate things. And there's no reason that we should be excusing bad behavior. You know, it doesn't mean it's an easy conversation to have, right? It doesn't mean that there is a simple way to solve this. And I think that one of the things that came out in the article is like, you know, you have a lot of organizations putting policies in place or trying to think about staff training in a meaningful way. How do you do that when you have young people that are on staff to begin with? These are great questions, but they're questions that we have to be able to ask. And honestly, we have to be able to answer. Because if we don't, we're doing everyone a disservice. Rabbi Daniel Ruttenberg says it most succinctly when she goes and says that uh, the um, the whole discussion and dialogue around interfaith relationships and intermarriage um, is totally uh, problematic when essentially what it's doing is reducing Jewish women to uteruses for more Jewish babies. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. I was going to say that I think looking back on my own experiences growing up in a lot of Jewish institutions, first off, the conversation was never had at all, ever, around um, 
healthy consent. But then also, it feels like a lot of these incidents happen behind closed doors. And that's, to me, and correct me if I'm wrong, like, more about teens in general than necessarily, like, a Jewish problem or an institution problem. It's like teens want to be rebellious. And so as soon as they're out of sight from parents, because looking back, I feel like the most, um, you know, toxic hookup culture type settings were on, you know, away from parents, like on like a retreat, a Shabbaton, um, a dance uh, camp or that type of stuff. So it's kind of hard to know how to interject. It makes me even think about bullying scenarios for young kids where a teacher might come and talk to the two kids and be like, you shouldn't bully the other kid. And then the bully is like, haha, how lame. The teacher told me to do that. I'm going to keep bullying you because you told on me. Do you know what I mean? So it's like, how do you actually get into the heads of the kids so that they actually realize what they're doing is wrong? without having that authority figure just telling them what to do, which oftentimes just doesn't work from my memory of being young. Right. I always liken it to the difference between talking at people versus talking with people, right? There's a difference between facilitating conversation and being able to engage people, whether it's teens or honestly younger kids, right? Because consent education shouldn't start with teenagers. It should start with people that are are younger, right? So it's about being able to figure out how to bring them into the conversation so that they can help change the narrative. And I want to be clear, it doesn't mean that the onus to change the narrative rests on them. It really still rests on us. But like, if your response to something like this is, let's create policies and let's create a reporting protocol. And then before a Shabbaton or before a retreat or before something, we're going to stand up there and we're going to tell everybody what they can and can't do. It's, it's what I like to call the check the box approach. We're going to check the box. We're going to go down the list. We're going to make sure that we've done everything. So like everyone from our insurance company to our parent body knows we totally covered it all. And then we're going to put that piece of paper back in a binder that's going to sit on a shelf and collect dust and pretend like that was effective. Then you're doing everyone a disservice, right? That's not what it means to have a meaningful conversation. And with teens especially, even though the focus of Jewish youth groups are not going to be a whole weekend retreat about consent. If for decades and decades, the focus of a youth group has been, whether it's implicit or explicit, continue being Jewish and make sure that you date someone that's Jewish, well, then we need to take the time to unravel that. And that's not going to happen during a 10-minute lecture on a Friday before it's time to go, you know, bring in Shabbat. And we have to recognize that there actually does need to be time taken to unravel all of that stuff that's happened over over so many decades. I have a question in terms of um, some of the, the the disciplinary measures that you may not be seeing, and you don't you don't talk a much about uh, much about that but it used to be that if you did something wrong on any of these shabbatons or at camp that like there was always the kid that got kicked out of camp um and it seems like there that doesn't happen anymore it's like the we have to create a community around the kid that is struggling with their discipline issues um and i'm wondering if you know if there's just no kind of hard love and and if these if these issues are akin to what you see sometimes in the community as you know stigma around drug use or or or, you know, not talking about mental health. Is this just all in a bucket of goods where we can't we can't say that there is a there's a problem so everybody tiptoes around it? You know, that actually has not been my experience. And maybe it's because when someone calls me in, maybe they're in this different bucket of like, we know that you're gonna mean business. Like nobody calls in the former sex crimes prosecutor unless they actually wanna see something happen, right? So maybe it's like maybe it's the people that might choose to call me, but I have to tell you, I've seen plenty of camps send people home, staff and kids. I've seen plenty of schools decide that there is someone that's not safe to be in their school, whether that's an adult or whether that's a kid, right? And I, I, I have actually, and look, there have been plenty of times where I myself have been put in a situation where I've said to someone, this is someone that shouldn't be around other kids. And it doesn't mean, by the way, that they don't need help and that it isn't important to get them that help, right? And it doesn't mean that there isn't the ability to come back in some way or to, to work on certain things. But when you have a teenager, you know, that, that 
let's use an extreme example, right? Let's, let's use the example of rape. You have a teenager that rapes someone else, aside from the fact that the police should be called and law enforcement should be involved, and that's not something that should ever be handled internally. If it's not safe to have somebody there, you don't have someone there, right? And so for me, I have no problem setting a hard line, and I definitely think it's the Bronx prosecutor in me that is like, this is what we have to do. Um, but there's a way to do that with compassion, and there's also a way to set a line. And maybe it is like, as you said, you know, that there are a lot of places that have a hard time and that struggle with it. And maybe part of how we get to a place where the struggle is not so, or, or rather where the struggle doesn't necessarily mean we don't do anything, right? That there's, there's total inaction is that we actually have to talk about it. We have to talk about when it's not safe to have someone around. Do you notice any changes generationally? Because I've heard a lot of stories from friends of mine who teach young kids that it's just a whole other world, like little kids saying, oh, I don't give you consent, like little preschool kids to, to play with my toy. I've heard many, many stories like that. And I, to me, it's a reflection of the times that we're in now. Do you notice a change in the work that you've done over, over the generations? Like, do you still see that? You know, I do. I do. I see a change. Look, I'm a parent of three kids myself, and I, I can't tell you the number of times that I've gotten calls from their teachers where, like, my three-year-old or when my child was three, you know, would say to the teacher something like, you just use the word secret and only bad people ask kids to keep secrets. And my mom puts people like you in jail. So you're going to jail, right? Like literally, like if I tell you and, and it wasn't, and it wasn't, and it wasn't even like, a, oh, you know, you're, you're not supposed to, it was like, you're not allowed to do that. And that's what bad people do. And my mom puts people like you in jail and like, you know, create such a that all the three-year-olds are like, what do we do and where do we go, you know? Um, but I, I have seen a bit of a shift and I think that there's, I think that there's more of both an interest and also an understanding that, that parents have to be able to navigate these issues with their kids. I see parents, you know, message me all the time or even just with the advent of social media and what's accessible to parents in terms of different resources where they think about or talk about what it means to, to teach your kid about consent, right? Like even I turn to my kids and will always say something like, hey, can I give you a hug? Right? Are you okay with me giving you a kiss right now? It's not because I don't want to like grab them and hug them because of course I do. It's because I want them to have ownership over the fact that nobody gets to touch you unless you're really comfortable with something like that happening. Even me who like gave birth to you, right? I don't have ownership over your body. So I'm a big believer in in the idea of tshuva, right? And the tshuva, repentance, um, requires, you know, transparency and saying, this is what we've done wrong and accepting that that's what it is and that these are the systems that we're putting in place or I'm personally putting in place to make sure that this doesn't happen again. Because I believe that without these safeguards, without showing and demonstrating that you're planning on never doing this again and you're putting up these things which will make sure that you don't do this again, um, tshuva doesn't really happen. And in the Jewish context, right, that to me is an essential feature of where Jewish organizations can and should be going um, for this. What has worked with regards to um, tshuva, so to speak, the, the moving forward for organizations that have dealt with these issues? And what are some of the concrete steps that you think should be taken or can be taken uh, at the institutional level, at the micro level, um, in order that tshuva starts to happen within organizations? So I actually have to disagree with you. Um, and I have to disagree with you in order to answer your question, Please. because though I believe that tshuva is, you know, a huge piece, obviously, of, of being Jewish and of our ethos and, and philosophy and theology and, and practice, when it comes to things like abuse and harassment, tshuva may not have as big of a role or as big of a place and maybe shouldn't be the first question or even the third question that we're asking about, right? If we put all of this bad behavior into one bucket, then it's really hard to have this conversation. But if we parse it out and talk about the differences between a teen interacting with a teen and not realizing that boundaries need to exist, then there's definitely room for us to be able to teach that and to be able to have people come back from that. But when we talk about pedophiles, when we talk about people that sexually abuse other people, when we talk about rapists or issues of sexual assault, chuva is not a communal issue. It is, it is, 
absolutely the right of somebody that that experienced it. Well, right? I would push back. I would say that chuva needs to be needs. You need to have a path for chuva for a pedophile. But part of that path of chuva or that transparency is to say, I'm going away from here and I'm not going to go around to children ever again. Right. And I want you to know that in that, like, it's not about saying I'm sorry back to the person. It part of that Shiva is I'm never going to contact you or other children again. I'm just looking at what are the best practices within organizations that show that they're genuinely interested in changing and fixing and repairing what the, what has gone wrong within the organizations. Well, then I think you have to divide. Right. I think you have to say mm -hmm. there's a difference between looking at an individual or a person, someone who's a pedophile, someone who sexually abused someone. And I think you have to remove the question of chuva and even the concept of repentance from the equation when it comes to those when it comes to those acts and those people. And there is a difference between, let's say, an institution that's that's dealing with the fact that they've had historical abuse or that they have, you know, swept something under the rug or they're realizing that 30 years ago something really bad happened and now they're trying to make it right and they're trying to be able to be better. That type of institutional chuva usually requires some kind of reckoning an acknowledgement, right? A public reckoning or a public apology in some way. Or, you know, many institutions will go back and either conduct some sort of fact finding or investigation, will involve law enforcement. And a lot of it depends on the type of thing that has happened, right? When it comes to individuals, and I hear this a lot, like, how do we allow space for individuals that have done these bad things? not institutions, but individuals, how do we allow space for their repentance? And I actually would never feel comfortable having that conversation because when you have someone that, let's say, has sexually abused a child or has sexually assaulted someone in general, that's not actually a conversation I think we should be having because their ability to come back into the fold or come back into the community actually isn't for us to opine on because we weren't the person that was raped. Right. And we weren't the person that was abused. And to be quite honest, when it comes to kids, I don't think that there's room for that. And you may disagree, which is totally no, fine. I, but I, I actually agree completely. I think that there is there's there, what, what I was looking at specifically was institutional chuba, meaning like if you look at an organization that has had a point system amongst their teens for decades, and right. that basically turned a blind eye to it and saying, well, we sort of know that this exists, but we kind of deny it or we 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 push away, we push back on it and we say this shouldn't exist and this is bad and we don't think that we don't condone this. But this article comes out and shows that this has been happening for decades and nobody did anything about it. Institutionally, an organization needs to reckon and admit, right. yes, this has happened. We didn't do anything about it for whatever reason. And they can, they can and should be transparent. Maybe it's because, well, they were having Jewish babies and they were growing up marrying other Jews. And we thought that that was awesome. And that was part of the cost of it. And that's that reckoning. But what, what then happens? What do we go and say? How do you fix a problem like point systems amongst like sexually active teens? You stop it from happening. And you have to be creative in how you do that. Right. You can't if something hasn't worked in the past, if you're in a situation where something hasn't shifted or hasn't changed, even if the leadership has wanted it to change or like intellectually, everybody wants it to change. The bottom line is you have to be able to look at it and say, why is this happening? Is it happening because we're pushing this idea that everybody has to have, you know, Jewish babies? Right. Which is just I mean, such an incredibly like inappropriate and uncomfortable, you know, message to be sending teenagers is, is it because on some level there are those of us that actually think that there's something that's not so bad about it? Well, then that's really damaging and we have to be able to deal with that. Is it about the leadership not seeing how serious it is? Is it about the way that we structure what it is that we do? You know, a reckoning is more than just an apology. And it's more than an acknowledgement. It's about doing the hard work that's required in order to make change. And by the way, doing it as efficiently and really as right as you can. And so sometimes that might mean not just looking at your policies or your training, but actually actively saying, what is our plan for this particular Shabbaton or this retreat? What, are, what is our plan? How are we taking our staff and making sure that they have training? What are we saying to the kids that are involved here? And then what are we implementing over the course of the weekend? How are we not letting this slide?
it takes a lot. Those are all such important questions. And I really hope that there is a change. I've been, you know, I'm way too old now to be going to any of these types of youth groups. But I really do hope that by the time that I have children and they're in these institutions, that there is a change and people are asking the hard questions. Agreed. I I hope that these organizations know that you are a resource that can and should be used. Um, I hope these organizations are hearing this and saying, wow, let's fix this. Let's do some institutional chuva. Um, and conversely, I also hope that very soon uh, you will be out of bit. You'll be out of a job. I know. I hope that also. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's it. You're, you're in one of those positions where we hope that your 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 position never has to exist beyond you. Um, and uh, keep fighting the good fight and keep working with these organizations. Thank you so much, Rachel, for being here and uh, talking to us about this. Thank you so much for having me. It's really been wonderful. As a follow-up, I was uh, kind of curious about how this idea of consent is actually taught in sex ed classes. So I reached out to Stephanie Middleman, who is a, a faculty member at Concordia University, as well as an ASEC certified sex educator in Montreal. And here is that brief conversation. We'd love to say that we can make consent sexy. I mean, if everybody got on board with that, you know, half the battle there uh, would be won. Um, but, you know, we don't have a lot of messages in our global society about making consent sexy. And a lot of adults are not necessarily sure to do or how to do that. And so it doesn't often get translated to our youth. Um, but to your point, there certainly are uh, entire chapters on consent um, in the Quebec Mandatory Sex Education Program. And that starts from kindergarten all the way up to uh, secondary five. And now consent isn't a subject that is addressed at every single grade level. Um, usually it's probably every second grade level, but there are a number of different activities and things that are discussed um, depending on the level of function and age um, of the child. So the younger ones will start with things like consent for, um, you know, touching, who can see my body, who's not allowed to see my body, issues around friendships. Um, and then as we scaffold and get older, then it becomes more about um, consent in terms of relationships and friendships and dating um, and, you know, who's allowed to do what and when. And also there really is a big push around getting people to use words to get verbal consent from someone else rather than just relying traditionally on facial expressions or body language. You know, like if you move into someone and they move back, that's generally not such a great sign. <laughs> but uh, we're trying to get people to, to learn to use the value of words. You know, like I'm really into you. Would it be okay if I, you know, kissed you? Would it be okay if I held your hand? Um, and so I think that there's a, a process underway here, but it's going to take some time for everybody to be on board there. And of course, there are people that say, well, that's silly. It's not the kind of thing you talk about. Um, but I actually believe that it's something that's very romantic and even in your words, sexy, because if somebody says, you know, hey, I'm really into you, you know, can I whatever, uh, that might be something really nice for someone to hear. And then we also know that we're getting a very clear yes or no, and not just a trying to assess of somebody's body language, facial expressions, because uh, those are not always entirely accurate measures for how somebody is feeling, especially as something, you know, as important around consent. Let's move on to our Nachas of the Week, where we like to highlight something which has come across our radar and given us some Nachas as Jewish Canadians. Melissa, what's been your Nachas? I am, um, I've, I've, I've got to say this, and I, I've lived in this country my entire life. I've been involved in, uh, in advocacy efforts, uh, you know, since, since I, I, I understood um, what, you know, what Zionism was to me, and I have never seen um, a, a community actually come together and work, uh, work together. I've always seen different organizations say different things. And for the first time, uh, in, in my lifetime, and hopefully not the, not the last, I see, you know, organizations who have different mandates who are all speaking about, 
um, the same thing, and that's the the rise in anti-Semitism and what we're actually going to do uh, about it. And it, and it happens, you know, it happens with the conflict between um, uh, Israel and the terror organization that seeks to destroy it, all the way to, uh, you know, Ben and Jerry's making political statements and, uh, uh, you know, and a boycott movement. And I've never seen a community agree on so many things. So I hope that uh, that continues. It's my Nachas of the week. I hope it's the Nachas of the year in my lifetime. And I hope you get invited to the next anti-Semitism summit. Although, as we said, I, I hope there is no anti-Semitism summit, but if there is one, you, you should be on there. I'm in the, I'm in the wrong party for that. Alana, what's your nachas? I got kind of excited about this new uh, DC comic that's coming out. And I'm not a big superhero person, but I kind of want to read this one. It's the first Jewish superhero in over 40 years. Her name is Willow Zimmerman, and her superhero name is Whistle. Her sidekick is a Great Dane named Leibowitz. And the synopsis is Willow's often on the streets, protesting City Hall's neglect of her rundown Gotham neighborhood downriver, a former all-Jewish district based on New York's Lower East Side. How cool is that? So that's coming out on September 7th. Wow, I, I had no idea. That's actually really, really cool. Is, it could be based on Abby Feinkel. Like, you would make a good Jewish superhero. Really? What's my what's my superpower? Okay. The, Making cocktails? Is that a superpower? Cocktail? Like, co- uh, what are they called? Molotov oh. cocktails? <laughs> I don't know. That just, Whoa. That just escalated quickly. <laughs> it, was a, it was a synagogue uh, when I was living in Chicago that got actually had, had a Molotov cocktail thrown um, in its window. Uh, and the newspaper accidentally, or I don't know what happened, there was some crossed wires there, and they called it a Molotov Mazel tough cocktail. Oh, um, and I thought that was like hysteria. Everybody like made fun of it. And I was like, I should make a cocktail one day that is like a flaming mo, but we'll call it the Mazel tough cocktail. But what's yours, Abby? What do you got going? I, I don't know if you noticed, but we didn't mention our uh, rabbi word of the week yet. Um, that's because I'm combining my idea of my nachas with uh, a rabbinic voice. Uh, a this really amazing guy, Dvir Kahana, who uh, is a former uh, Moshe House Montreal uh, member who's now a rabbinical student in New York, um, has been rapping the Torah. And every week he has for the Torah portion a different rap. Um, and he has this arts organization that is starting up soon. Um, it is called the Amain Institute. Um, you can go check it out at theamaininstitute.com. They're just in the process of like rolling out things. Um, but he was reaching out to me about this like Amain Institute. I was like, oh, that sounds cool. And he's telling me, I was like, oh, wait, you rap stuff. He goes, yeah, I have a Parsha rap for every week. I was like, Cool. So um, with all out further ado, uh, I present you my bar mitzvah portion, Va'et Hanan, right? This week's Torah portion, um, wrapped by Dvir Kahana for my Nachas of the Week. Just repeating everything my father gave to us. It's so productive, but don't lose the subjective. It's productive, not destructive. If only you knew how much your love gives. Thank you for listening to Bonjour Chai for Thursday, July 22nd. Our producer is Michael Freeman, technical production by Andre Goulet. Our music is by SoCalled. We are a project of the Jewish Living Lab and are distributed by the CJN Podcast Network. Subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Please leave a comment and a rating on the platform of your choice and let us know what you think about our discussions on the CJN Lounge on Facebook. I'm Avi Feingold. I'm Melissa Lantzman. And I'm Ilana Zakon. Alice and Comforter Alice and Mother Learn